Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We're very blessed to have with us Father Eisenberg, just ordained four weeks ago. Yes. He'll lead us in prayer and give us his blessing. If you could please stand. On behalf of Father Hathaway and myself, Father Eisenberg, welcome to St. Veronica's. Uh, it's truly great to have you here in the Institute here um, to spread the gospel message. And so as all good Catholics do, we begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. God, our Father, you sent your Son as a light in the darkness into our world. Dispel the darkness in our hearts. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this night that we may hear your word and speak your truth to all peoples, so that as they hear this truth, their hearts may be opened and enlightened with the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, so that one day all peoples may be gathered under your name. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much, Father. All right, we're going to get right to our subject because my brother has a lot to cover tonight. I hope you brought your Bibles, yes? yes. Hold them up. Our speaker this evening received his... Do you believe I'm going to read a biography of my brother? Yes. Received his doctorate in biblical studies from Catholic University of America. Uh, he's a full-time instructor in sacred scripture and biblical languages at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary of the Fraternity of St. Peter in Lincoln, Nebraska. He's also the academic director of the Permanent Diaconate Formation Program for the Diocese of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a lecturer in Sacred Scripture at Notre Dame Graduate School of Christendom College. He also happens to be my brother. Yes, that is written there. Thank you, Melanie. <laughs> Subdeacon Sebastian and his wife, Leela, have five children and live in Denton, Nebraska. Please join me in welcoming back my brother, Subdeacon Sebastian Carnazzo. Okay, our topic tonight, call no man on earth your father, and a study of the priesthood in the Bible. What do you think about when you hear that, call no man on earth your father? What images come to mind? What's that? Aggressive Baptist. Aggressive Baptist. God bless the Baptists. At least they made you think about the Bible, huh? Oh, they have a Catholic priest. Why? Because they're called father. Hey, that's pretty good. All right, what else? Our dad. Your dad? Yeah. Why not? Right. Your dad is your father. Okay. Good. Good. In English, we have a million different words for everything, so we say dad, father. Yeah. In many languages, just one word. Yeah. Abba. Good, that's the Aramaic, right? Abba, Av is father in Hebrew. Ava is uh, the Aramaic, father. Pater, 
right? You've heard pater, right? Latin or Greek, same thing, pater. That's actually the same thing, father. Pater, father. That's the same Indo-European word. So, uh, oh, what about the Pope? Papa. Papa, right? Pope, Papa, it's all, right? These, and these are all going back to those same, those same, uh, same roots. Ab, Abba, Papa, it's the interchange of a P and a B. Yeah. What else? God the Father. God the Father. Amen. Okay, so let's go and look at that text. That's in Matthew chapter 23. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Those of you that don't have a Bible with you, shame on you. And uh, uh, you can look on with your neighbor. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew's in the New Testament. <laughs> Matthew chapter 23, uh, verse 9. And call... No man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. What do you think about that? You said you call priest father? Yeah, but what I think about it, I think about these, is the, the Jews that he was talking to, I think they were very much about Abraham. Okay. So you're, you're saying context means something? Yes. <laughs> nah. What about the first word? And. What kind of a word is that? Connector. That's a connector. Wonder what came before it. Nah. So context, right? Always read everything in context. Uh you know, uh, a good friend of mine, Bob Ward, some of you guys know him uh, from St. Raymond's, his great Bible studies here in the diocese. Uh, I was just talking to him today, and he was talking about this issue of context. He gave me an example that he always likes to use. I love it. He said, he said if you said, and the man had a mouse on his desk. Right? What do you mean he had a mouse on his desk? And all of a sudden, you start thinking, a mouse on his desk. Oh, he's a, mou- a computer mouse. I know what you're saying. Right? Go back 200 years ago. What would that mean? Fast forward 200 years from now, right? Context means everything. You think you're going to have a mouse on your desk in 200 years? No way. It's going to be implanted in your head or something. Who knows? So if we're still around. 200 years ago, you didn't have a little mouse you held on your desk, right? So context, context, everything. Historical context. Who is the author? Who is the intended audience? First and foremost, literary context. What's the sentence before and what's the sentence after? Right? What's the paragraph? So let's look at that in context. Chapter 23, verse 1. Beginning of the paragraph. Then said Jesus to the crowds and the disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on the Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. So we're hearing here the latter part of Matthew's gospel a critique of the Pharisees. What do you think when you hear a Pharisee? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. I hate those guys. Now, so who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees, the parashim, the separated ones, were, it was a religious movement at the time, and uh, they had their own agenda the way they thought they were going to solve the problem of the, the lack of appearance of the Messiah and the problem with Herod and the Romans and where's the ark and all that stuff. They had different religious movements at the time that had different solutions to the problem. And the Pharisees was one of those movements. And even among the Pharisees, there were different groups among them. Anyway, the latter part of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is condemning the Pharisees here. 
because the Pharisees have condemned him. Earlier in the gospel, he was working with them. They come ask him questions. Why don't they wash their hands? Well, let me talk to you about that. How come your, your rabbi uh, eats with tax collectors? Well, so early on you see him dialoguing with them, answering their questions. And he even gives them some homework. He says, you go and see what the scripture passage is all about. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Hmm. So they go away. When they come back and they haven't done their homework, Jesus says, if you had gone and done your homework and you knew what that meant, you would not condemn me for what I'm doing now. That's the second part of the gospel now. Okay? We talked about this a few weeks ago when we had a study of the gospel of Matthew. So if this is new stuff to you and who are the Pharisees, you can go back and look at those records on the Institute website. Okay? So what we're looking at is the latter part of the gospel here where the Pharisees and Jesus are going head to head now. The Pharisees as a movement, at least the leaders of the Pharisees, have decided Jesus is not the Messiah and he's a bad guy and we've got to get rid of him. Okay? And so now they're laying traps for him as opposed to simply asking him questions. So Jesus now also condemns them to his followers. Jesus says to his followers, don't be like the Pharisees. He says, respect them for now because they sit on Moses' seat. That is, there are teachers in the law, and they can tell you, you know, what Moses said and what is right and what is wrong. But watch carefully. Be careful. He warned them in other places. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. So what is he talking about here? He's saying don't be like the Pharisees in those bad ways that the Pharisees are. And he gives examples of that here. He says, listen to them. They are teachers, however. And he gives you a list of things to watch out for the Pharisees. He says, Verse 4, they bind heavy burdens and hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with their finger. Right? So don't be like that as leaders of this new movement, as the king of the kingdom of God that I'm establishing with you. Don't go laying heavy burdens on men that you yourself wouldn't carry. Right? And as you go through this whole section, you can see very practical advice Jesus is giving to his apostles. You might think, well, they would know not to follow the Pharisees, wouldn't they? No. Remember, the Pharisees were very influential at the time, and they were good Pharisees. They have Gamaliel in Acts, who defends Jesus before the Sanhedrin and the, defends the, uh, the Christians. Think of Nicodemus, Nicodemus, right, who again defends Jesus before the Sanhedrin. I'll give you example after example. Think of Paul, right? Paul the, uh, Paul the Pharisee. Okay, so then, look what he says. He says, uh, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by men, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. The phylacteries, these were the, they would have leather pouches and they would put the scroll, the law in it, and they would put it on their head, a big uh, leather pouch, and bind it around their head and then do, bind it around their hands, the phylacteries. You have probably seen conservative Jews doing this in the airports or wherever you are in different places. Those of you who went to the Holy Land recently saw that probably a number of times, huh? The phylacteries. Uh, and he doesn't say don't pray, and that, that the idea, the pious idea of keeping the law bound on your head and on your hands comes from Exodus chapter 13. It's a nice idea, but he says the reason why they're doing that is they want praise from men, that they're praying. He says, uh, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue, the salutations in the marketplace, being called rabbi by men, teacher. He says, but you, you my followers, you are not to be called rabbi, for you are of one teacher. And you, all, you are all brethren. Rav in Hebrew means exalted. Ravi, my exalted one. It translates basically as teacher in English. 
Okay, and here, in fact, you have a translation from the Hebrew, uh, from the, the uh, translation of rabbi into the Greek, didaskalos, teacher. And you are all brethren. Verse 9, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called masters, for you have one master, and that is Christ, referring to himself. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Again, you can hear the underlying theme that is common to all of these statements. That is, prideful exaltation of an individual over others, overbearing authority upon them for nothing but pride. But don't be like that. And then you have these classic woes against the Pharisees, verse 13, all the way through the rest of the chapter which is what most people think of when they think of the Pharisees. Woe, scribes and Pharisees, for they do this, but they don't do that. They do this, but they don't do that. Again, if you want a study of this, you want to uh, learn more about this, you can go onto the website and look at our study of the Gospel of Matthew a few weeks ago. Okay? All right. So, one way to interpret this statement, call no man teacher, call no man father, is in the broader context, literary context of the passage. And that is that Jesus is saying, do not be like the Pharisees. In this way, that way, that way. And a lot of these things are culturally bound. We'd have to go back and spend a lot of time looking at it. The other way to read it would be out of the context of the passage and simply take that line that we looked at, verse 9, out of context and simply say that Jesus is saying, you shall not call any man on earth your father. Okay. Now, if we take that out of its context, including the line above it, we've got some problems here, right? Call no man teacher. Any elementary school teachers here? Any? High school teacher? Did you just call yourself a teacher? Yes, I did. <laughs> Elementary? Uh, yeah. And? High school teacher? CCD. CCD teacher? Any others? Uh-oh. We got a problem. We have teachers among us. Oops. Now, uh, what else do we have? Do we have any fathers among us? Uh-huh. Tom, you got any kids? Yep. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> you're just the male producer, right? But we're not going to use the word father, right? We want to avoid that. Uh, any other people who have the title father here? <laughs> Imagine about half of you in the room, right? 49% I don't know what it is. So, so you've, we've got a lot of men in this room who are fathers, right? Should we not call them fathers? Should we strike the title, uh, the, 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 uh, the holiday from our American uh, festival cycle? Father's Day? Because it's condemned by the passage? Is it condemned? Father's Day? No, we should say male, you know, producer or something day. Uh, obviously not. That's crazy. Right? So, this goes Sire's Day. That would be good. Sire's Day and then Educator's Day. Right? Then we're safe. Well, of course, this is ridiculous. Right? And anyone who who uh, you know, looks at this passage and say, well, look, that's not what he's talking about. So what he's talking about here is the use of the title, teacher or father, in a, another way besides that familial sense or an elementary school teacher sense, in a religious sense maybe. Okay, I agree with that. In a non-familial sense, it's calling someone father who is not actually your dad, right? And imagine your Baptist friend. Uh, mention that to you. Okay, so let's look at a couple of passages in the Bible and see if we can shed some light on this. Okay, that actually re- use the word father in that way. Turn back to Second Kings, Second Kings, chapter two. 
That's in the Old Testament. <laughs> you know the story? Elijah and Elisha have crossed the Jordan River. And Elisha's trying to hang on close to Elijah. He doesn't want to let go of this guy because he knows Elijah's about ready to take off. And so Elisha's hanging on close to him. And then all of a sudden, Elijah's taken up in the fiery chariot. You know the story. And what does Elisha say? This is in verse 11. Verse 11. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. As they still went on, they talked. And behold, a chariot of fire. You've seen the movie. Horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And, the, uh, let's see, sorry, I lost my spot here. Separate the two. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind to heaven, verse 12. And Elisha cried out, My father, my father. Oops, why would he do that? Doesn't he know what Jesus is going to say? He's a prophet. So, what is he doing here? Now, we know this is not Elisha's dad. Elijah is not Elisha's dad. If you know the story, Elisha earlier had said, Hey, let me go and kiss my father, say goodbye to the family, and then I'll follow you, Elisha. Not sure. So Elisha goes and does that, right? You know the earlier part of the story. And then he follows Elijah. So there's no question, there's no debate about this, that Elijah is not Elisha's dad. But he calls him father. My father, my father. Why is he doing this? Because he is using the word father in that very Semitic way. The Semites use these terms, father, mother, brother, sister, son, daughter, in ways that we typically don't in modern English, in our culture. They use those terms in all sorts of different contexts. Someone who is an elder above you, you refer to as father. If it's a female, you say mother. If it's your equal, you say brother or sister. And if they're below you in some way, politically or, or in any kind of an authoritarian way, son or daughter. Even Jesus refers to his apostles in John's Gospels. He says, my little children. Jesus talks about the Pharisees using these terms in another place where he's not actually even talking about these terms, but he uses it uh, in reference to something else. He says, If I cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, then by whom do your sons cast them out? He doesn't mean by whom do the kids of the Pharisees cast out demons. He means the disciples of the Pharisees. That's that language, that familial language being used in all sorts of other contexts. So, but someone might say, well, this is the Old Testament. Okay, but we're in the New now. Right? So let's look in the New Testament for some examples of the use of Father in a non-literal, familial sense. Turn over to Acts chapter 7. And again, I pointed out to you already in John's Gospel, Jesus' use of children, but let's see the use of Father specifically here. Acts chapter 7. Stephen is being condemned by the Sanhedrin. In big trouble, you know the story and what will happen to him, the first martyr of the church. Acts chapter 7, Stephen stands in front of the whole multitude and he says this. The high, and, he's, uh, and the high priest said, is this so? And Stephen said, brethren and fathers, hear me. This is the first martyr of the church and he's already disobeying the commandments of Jesus. So, What's he doing here? Obviously, he's not disobeying the commandments of Jesus. Stephen understands the commandments of Jesus way better than we do. So Stephen is using the word brethren, brothers, and fathers in that very Semitic way. He's standing in front of a group of people, elder men, priests and Sadducees and and Pharisees and elders in the community, and also men that are about his age. And he says, my fathers and my brothers. Okay? So obviously... They are not all of his brothers descended from one mother. And they are obviously not all his fathers by one mother. 
right? Otherwise, we've got a real problem with Stephen. Okay, so we see this. Another example of this is later on in chapter 22, verse 1. If you flip over to Acts chapter 22, Paul does the same thing. Acts chapter 22, verse 1. Paul is about to be put in prison. He had gone to the temple. The Jews found him there. And they were about to kill him. And the Roman soldiers came in, in this case, saved one of the Christians, as opposed to trying to kill him, and drags him over to the, uh, to the barracks to keep him safe, to figure out what's going on, why this, why this scuffle is going on in the temple. And in chapter 22, Paul speaks to the crowd, and he says, Brethren, my brothers and fathers. Again, the same way Stephen uses it there. Okay? So, does Paul not know Matthew chapter 3, verse 9? Well, I don't know whether or not he knows that text or not, but surely he knows the commandments of God. Surely he knows the teachings of Jesus. Paul speaks with Jesus in visions, and, he has, and he's taken to the third heaven. So, but someone might say, well, look, Acts chapter 7, Isaiah, or Acts chapter 22, verse 1, Stephen and Paul, these are examples of them being used in that cultural sense. It's like elder, something like that. My elders who are among me, something like that. Well, let's look at some clearly religious usage, usages of this title. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the same Paul that we just heard, we hear him writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. I do not write this to make you ashamed. He just given them a little bit of a tongue lashing. But to admonish you as my beloved children. Really? The whole Corinthian community? Paul's kids? No. So, what is he doing? He says, verse 15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, and there have been many teachers who have come through the region in Corinth, and Paul's at odds with some of them, you, have, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus. Through the gospel. Very religious usage there. What he's doing is he's saying, look, I'm the one who brought the gospel to Corinth. There have been many teachers who have come after me, Paulos and others. But I am your father in Christ. Right? What does he mean that? He is their, their sire, their genitor, the one who taught them the gospel and brought them into the kingdom of God as children of God. And so he refers to them as his children. He uses that same language in a number of other places, and we'll just look at a couple of examples, but make sure you've highlighted 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, a great example of this. In verse 16, he says, I urge you then be imitators of me, verse 17, therefore I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Another one? Oh, he's got a lot of kids. Who is Timothy? We know that Paul's not the father of Timothy. In Acts chapter 16, we hear that Timothy's dad was a Greek. Paul's not a Greek. So, Paul is using that same language. I am your father. I am the father of the Corinthian community. And Timothy, like you are, you are my children, Timothy is my beloved son. In Christ, in the gospel. 
And even there, Paul didn't convert Timothy. Timothy was a Christian long before Paul came along in chapter 16 of Acts. So he's using it in that sense of his religious superior, his director, his teacher in the faith. Other examples, you can just write these down. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. He says to Timothy, you are my beloved child in Christ. He says it also to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 4. Titus chapter 1, verse 4. To Titus, my beloved child, my beloved son in Christ. In the beginning of his epistles to these individuals. <clears throat> Likewise, you can add to that 1 Thessalonians 2.11. 1 Thessalonians 2.11. And Philemon, not to be confused with Philippians. Philemon, verse 10. There's only one chapter. So Philemon 10. Okay, and he says about, uh, he says he's writing to Philemon about Onesimus. I became his father while I was in prison. What does he mean? He became the teacher of Onesimus, the escaped slave from Philemon. Now, any other questions on that? We can talk about that afterwards. But what you can see is that either Jesus is using the term father and teacher in, a, uh, in speaking as a condemnation about using those terms in the greater context against the Pharisees and saying, don't be like the Pharisees. And that therefore, he doesn't mean universally you should never use the word teacher or father. Of course, this is all very logical in, in the context. Or you could take those lines out of context and see it as a universal condemnation of the use of the word father and, and teacher. And then all of a sudden, of course, you've got massive problems. Right? You can't use the word Father's Day anymore. You can't refer to your dad. You can't uh, have elementary school teachers and high school teachers. You, um, you've got Elisha, the great prophet, who is a prefigurement of Christ. Uh, misusing the, uh, the title. We've got Paul in the New Testament, of course, misusing the terms and the titles. Big problems, right? Obviously, the former solution makes more sense. We can deal with that. If you have any other questions regarding that, we can talk about that afterwards, okay? Now, to the second part of our topic tonight, and that is a biblical understanding of the priesthood. What do you think of when you hear the word priest? Sacrificer. What do you mean? What do you think of when you hear sacrifice? Jesus, sacrifice to Jesus, sure, okay, good, sacrifice. Sacrifice in the Bible, in the Judeo-Christian understanding, is giving up something to God. It doesn't mean destruction or death, but giving to God, giving back to God what he has given to you. And that really gets us to the sense of what the word priest means in the Old and New Testament, and that is a mediator, a mediator between God and creation. But before we get to that, what where do you first hear the word priest in the Bible? Old Testament. Old Testament. Oh, Old Testament. Got to be. Huh? Have you guys been reading the Bible? Melchizedek? You know, reading the Bible is very dangerous. Okay, so Melchizedek, Genesis chapter 14. I was kidding about the dangerous part. The first use of the term priest in the Bible appears in Genesis 14. Abraham has come back from the great battle. You've all read the text. And he is met by a man named or titled Melchizedek. This is, occurs in chapter 14 of Genesis, verse 17. After this return from the defeat of Shed or Lo Amer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, king of Salem, Melchizedek. What does this mean? Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Melchizedek. 
Melech. Melech means king in Hebrew, right? Melech or Melchah in Aramaic. Melech and Zedek. Zedek is righteousness. This is a throne name for this guy. When he was born, his mom didn't name him king of righteousness. Okay? Oh, I was going to call you maybe, I don't know, Avrahim, Yaakov. Nah, king of righteousness. That'll go well in elementary school. So, what does it mean, king of righteousness? This is the throne name. You hear him all over in the Old Testament. Abimelech, right? My father king. Uh, Adonai Zedek, Lord king. Uh, Ahimelech, brother king. Right? Again, Adonai Zedek, coming back to the context here, Adonai Zedek, Lord of righteousness, that is the king of Salem. He's a Jebusite. That brings us back to the text here. King of Salem. King of Salem. What is Salem? Some of you were there just a few weeks ago, right? Jerusalem. Right? Jerusalem. Salem is the same location. Salem is the ancient city of the Jebusites. It was eventually conquered by David. We'll come to that in a second. And David becomes king of Jerusalem. Right? So Salem. He is the king of Salem, a real city. He's a real guy. According to the patristic tradition, some of the fathers thought he might be Shem. Uh, and again, that would, we can talk about that afterwards. You have more questions about that. But he's a real guy. Uh, the, the, in the rabbinic tradition, Shem, the eldest son of Noah. And according to St. Ephraim as well. Uh, but what's important there is, uh, for our, what we're doing here is to understand that Melchizedek is his throne name. He's the king. He has a throne name. He's the king of Salem. Okay? And he's also, notice, the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Avram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. Right? This is the God of Genesis 1.1. Right? He's a priest of the God of Genesis 1.1. He worships and is the priest of the creator God. Same God that we see in Genesis 1. The reason why I point that out is some commentaries will say that, well, he was a Jebusite pagan priest or something, but that's obviously the author of the text has intended you to make the connection back to Genesis 1.1. And blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham gave him a tenth of what he had gotten out of the spoils. So what is Melchizedek doing here? He's called a king. We know the king, he has a throne name, he's the king of the city of Salem or Jerusalem. He's also called a priest. He offers up bread and wine. And he blesses Abraham and God. The word blessing being used in two different ways here. Okay? So, blessed be God and blessed be Abraham. So he stands between God and Abraham and Abraham gives him a tithe. What kind of an image do you see there? I heard it. He's a mediator, an intermediary, right? There's God and there's Abraham. And he's, he blesses God, he praises God, and he blesses Abraham. And Abraham gives him a tithe, obviously intended as a sacrifice or a gift for God. So Melchizedek is standing in between God and Abraham as this kind of mediator. We'll see this come up in the Epistle of Hebrews. So now that we talk about, we see priests being used in the Bible in reference to Melchizedek, who is the king. The concept of king was also seen as a mediator in the ancient world. Been God and the people. And he blesses and he offers up bread and wine and he's given a tithe. The mediator. Well, now that can, we can maybe rewind a little bit in salvation history back to the first mediator between God, the creator, and the rest of creation. And who was that? Adam, right? If you go back to Genesis, 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and following, you see that God creates man and woman in his image and likeness. That's sonship. Right? He makes, makes man and woman, he makes humanity as the climax of his creation in his own image and likeness. Who do you look like? Your parents, right? Now, this doesn't mean in a Mormon sense that Adam was just like God. And, but rather, what it means is that out of all creation, humanity had a very special role. They were to be like God among the creation. And so they had a mediatory role. They were the ones who were to subdue the earth. That doesn't mean crush it and destroy it. It means take care of it. Till and keep it, we see in Genesis chapter 2. Well, whose job is it to till and keep the earth? God's, right? So we have God creating a creature that is going to be kind of a mediator, have a certain special role between him and his creation. It itself, man is a creature, but that creature has been given the special, special mediatorial role. Okay? And so often you'll hear that Adam was the priest king of creation. That's in reference back to that imagery. Okay, so if Adam is the father of all, right, as we see in number place in the Bible and you see in Genesis and as Paul says in the New Testament in Romans chapter 5, all are descended from Adam. Therefore, we all in a certain sense participate in that relationship between creation and God, that mediatorial role. We, humanity, have a very special responsibility in the creation to care for the earth. We have the power to destroy this big blue ball and we have the power to preserve it and take care of it and offer it back to God who created it, right? So even you can see Adam's, Adam's role, we can see it in our own, in our own uh, life today. But as you go throughout the Old Testament, you see that this concept of priesthood is in all the nations. Again, it goes back to this idea of Adam, and what you, we all sense that we have this special care for creation. Among all the nations, you see a priesthood develop. You see in Egypt, right, in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 41, verse 45, Genesis chapter 41, verse 5, 45, we see Pharaoh give Aseneth, the daughter of the priest of On, as wife to Joseph. Right? So the Egyptians have priests, and we know this from the Old Testament. The Midianites had priests. Jethro, right? Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, verse 16. Jethro, right? Eventually Moses' father-in-law is called priest of Midian. He is understood to be a mediator between the Midianites and God. The Egyptians had their mediators between their gods and the, and the Egyptians. So why is this throughout? Again, you can look at all the different cultures. You can find this idea of the priesthood, this mediatorial role. Why? Because it goes back to the, to the nature of man. goes back to Adam. Israel, and this is getting more important to our topic here, Israel had a priesthood, right? Israel had a priesthood and actually different kinds. In Exodus chapter 19, turn with me to Exodus chapter 19, we see the first priesthood mentioned among the Israelites. They come to Mount Sinai, and God says to them, verse 3, Moses went up to the... To God and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to all the people of Israel, verse 4, You have seen what I did the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5, Therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession 
among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Israel was called to be a priestly nation, mediate between God and the rest of the nations. They were to teach the nations, the pagan nations, the truth about the one great creator God and bring them into communion with him. They had a mediatorial, priestly role. Of course, they failed miserably at that. But that was their calling. Peter will talk about the church having that role right? in the New Testament. Priestly nation. So Israel was understood in general, the nation of Israel, to be a corporate priest, a national priesthood to mediate between the nations and God. Not to keep them apart, but actually to bring them together. That was the purpose. In chapter 19, verse 22, we see another priesthood. In chapter 19, verse 22, Moses is up on the mountain. And God says to Moses, in chapter 19, verse 22, And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out upon them. Now you might say, well, well, who are those priests? I think maybe Aaron and his sons. But no, look at this, what it says. It says, And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come out to the Mount Sinai, for thou thyself didst charge them, saying, Let's set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Verse 24. And the Lord said, Good, you're right. Go down, come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break out. So the priest that we're talking about here is not Aaron and his sons, but rather some other group that's there. If you look in Exodus chapter 13, you see a hint at who these individuals are. Many commentators see them as the firstborn priesthood. God had saved the firstborn of Israel from all, out of all the tribes of Israel. He saved them in Egypt. And so they had a special mediatorial role between God and the rest of Israel. They would pray and offer sacrifices. That was, this is before the golden calf. In chapter 24, we actually see them offering sacrifices, and Moses encourages it. In chapter 24, verse 4, chapter 24, verse 4, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. 24, verse 5, And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offer burnt offerings and sacrifice, peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So we see, not only is Israel a priest among the nations, to bring communion between God and the nations, but all the people of Israel themselves, every tribe had people among them who had a special mediatory role. Again, it wasn't to separate, but rather to bring communion, to bring together. These individuals have been set apart from Israel by God, and therefore they had a special role to pray for the rest of their tribes and their people to God and offer sacrifices for them. And then we come to the priesthood that most people are familiar with, and that is in Exodus chapter 28. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, God says, Bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, from among the people in Israel to serve me as priests. And you know the rest of the story about Aaron and his sons there. That's the priesthood most people think of when they think of the priesthood in the Old Testament. Okay? So we have a number of examples of priests in the Old Testament. And then among Israel in particular, we have these, this kind of threefold uh, priesthood held by all the nation. 
held by a special group, the firstborn from all the tribes, and then held especially by Aaron. Okay? And what were their roles? Again, it was not to separate, but rather to bring communion. Aaron had a special role, he and his sons, to take care of the sanctuary. You couldn't have all the young men from all 12 tribes offering sacrifices whenever they wanted and coming and trimming the wicks and the oil lamps and caring for everything in the holy place. It wasn't big enough and you'd have chaos. So Aaron, who was a firstborn, and his sons had the special role of taking care of the holy place, the sanctuary. But that did not restrict the other, uh, the firstborn from all the tribes from offering sacrifices. Now, what changed? As you know, that was not what happened in the rest of the Old Testament. Well, shortly after this, this is before the golden calf, shortly after this and after the golden calf, we have a major change in the history of Israel, and that is the tragedy of the worship of the golden calf. In Exodus chapter 32, you know the story well, they, all, they made a calf. An image of the god Apis of Egypt, a fertility cult. Apis was worshipped in the form of a bull calf, and he was celebrated in an orgy. So you see they rose up to play. So Exodus chapter 32, a horrible tragedy. God had said, you shall worship no other god but me. And here they worship, as soon as they receive the law, another god, a god of Egypt. As Stephen says, right before his martyrdom, they received the law and they broke it. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses comes down the mountain and to deal with the situation, he says, all who are on the Lord's side come to me. This is in verse 25 and following. And who comes to him? The Levites, the tribe of Levi. And he says, go now and slay every man your brother and your son. That is, kill anyone who is involved in this idolatry. I don't care who they were. And they go and they do this with the sword. And he says to them, in verse 28, And the sons of Levi, verse 28, did according to the word of Moses, and there fell among the people that day about 3,000 men. And Moses said, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, and he may bestow a blessing upon you this day. This is the, the beginning of what we would call the Levitical priesthood. The tribe of Levi itself now has a special role among all the tribes. No longer can any young men from any of the 12 tribes offer sacrifices. Only Aaron and his sons can offer sacrifices. And in fact, none of the young men from any of the tribes or any of the tribes, anyone, can get anywhere near the sanctuary, the holy place. Otherwise, the Levites will kill them with a sword. And in fact, you see a replacement of the tribe of Levi in place of that firstborn priesthood in a number of places in the book of Numbers. If you turn over to Numbers chapter 3... After the book of Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, you come to chapter 3 of Numbers, verse 11. And the Lord said, this is Numbers chapter 3, verse 11. Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of the firstborn. You see a number of examples of this throughout the book of Numbers. The Levites, the tribe of Levi, are going to now have a special priestly mediatorial role themselves. Something that was supposed to be among all the tribes of Israel. Okay? Now, those are, the tri those are the priesthoods, the typical priesthoods we think of among uh, Israel. But there are some other examples of the priesthood. And it's important for us, before we jump into the New Testament, see uh, how things change and are fulfilled. 2 Samuel chapter 6, which I already mentioned to you. 2 Samuel chapter 6. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David takes Jerusalem, conquers it, conquers the Jebusites, and makes Jerusalem, chapter 5, his capital. 
In chapter 6, the next chapter, he decides to make Jerusalem his religious capital as well, not just the political capital, but he's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and he wants to build a temple there. We're going to see in chapter 7. But in chapter 6, as he's coming in in front of the Ark, leaping and dancing, verse 14, he's wearing a linen ephod. Who wears a linen ephod? The priests. What is David doing wearing a linen ephod? In fact, it says in verse 17, he's offering up peace offerings and burnt offerings to the Lord. That's stuff that got Saul in big trouble. But David's doing it. Not only is David offering sacrifice, but he's wearing a priestly garment. that is described back in Exodus 28 and 29 as the garment of the priest. But notice God doesn't say to Samuel or Nathan or one of the prophets, Hey, David's in big trouble here, like Saul was. Why does David, when he comes in Jerusalem, wear a linen ephod and offer sacrifices? Hmm. Psalm 110, maybe? You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Right? So David understands that he's, he's not... Uh, you know, trying to encroach on the priesthood of Aaron or the priesthood of the, of, uh, the Levites or anything, not trying to do any of that or the priesthood of Israel in general. David understands that he has inherited the throne of Melchizedek, his ancient, ancient ancestor. And therefore, he has inherited the, not only the throne, but the priesthood of Melchizedek. And again, you see this in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And you see him wearing the linen ephod and offering the sacrifices here. Right? Okay, now, we'll come back to that issue in a second, but I want you to look at two passages in the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 66, eventually you know there was the Babylonian uh, uh, exile. Isaiah prophesies about after the destruction of the temple and after the exile, that God would bring his people back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, and restore all things. But what's really beautiful about the prophets is that when they talk about the restoration of the kingdom after the Babylonian exile, they talk about it like before the golden calf, like before Solomon turned to the foreign gods. Everything is beautiful and perfect, restored. Garden of Eden imagery is even used. Okay? So Isaiah chapter 66, here's one of those examples where things are not just going to be rewound to the time just before the Babylonian exile, but rather rewound to the way things were supposed to be before they got ever close to the Babylonian exile. Isaiah chapter 66, last chapter of the book of Isaiah. He's talking about the restoration and how uh, the kingdom will be into eternity. And he says, chapter 66, He talks about all the nations shall gather to Israel. This is verse 18 and following. And then he says something very strange in verse 21. Chapter 66, verse 21. And some of them, of these nations, the peoples, these Gentiles, who will come in and worship Yahweh, of some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says Yahweh. What? How's that going to be? Well, because the restoration of the kingdom is not simply going to be rewind to the time of Zedekiah before the Babylonian exile. It's going to be a restoration back to before the golden calf. Back to the way it was supposed to be when they came out of Egypt. Back to the way it was supposed to be before Adam ever fell. 
It was supposed to be a restoration of humanity to that mediation between the Creator and all of creation restored. And so the prophets speak about it like that. And this is one of those examples. You can write down a few other examples. Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 17 and, 18, uh, 17 and 18. Jeremiah says that, that the, the, the Levites will never, uh, uh, never need another man on the throne or on the, to offer sacrifice or at the altar. They will never be in need of it. That is, they will, have, they will be filled. Their ranks will be constantly filled. It's parallel to here in Isaiah. They'll be filled with the Gentiles. Uh, Malachi chapter 1 verse 11 Malachi chapter 1 verse 11 one of the last prophets of the Old Testament says that he has a vision that incense which was only offered in the temple will be offered among all the nations so what that means is that this priesthood will not simply be Gentiles in the temple in Jerusalem but rather this priesthood will be among the nations where they are what are they talking about? Well, to understand that, of course, you have to have the, Old, the New Testament. And we can turn there now. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says this to Timothy. In fact, we can go up to verse 1 there. First of all, then I urge the supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life, godly and respectable in every way. He says to Timothy and to the congregation Ephesus, Pray for everyone. Verse 3. This is good and respectable and right in, in, in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 4. Who desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself up as a ransom for all. So what Paul says is that all these other priesthoods, all these other mediatory roles we have are all fulfilled in the restoration of humanity to what it was supposed to be and beyond. And that is in Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, right? More than Adam could ever imagine. Remember, Adam made in the image and likeness of God. Adam, the the, the, the priest, the mediator. So Jesus is a priest. No one among us would argue about that. Jesus is a priest. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11, the author of the Hebrews says that he is the high priest. Jesus is the high priest. And again, as Christians, you have no question about that. Jesus is not only a priest, but the high priest of our covenant. But what kind of priest is he? What kind of priest is Jesus? We talked about all sorts of different priesthoods in the Old Testament. What priesthood does Jesus possess? What does the author of the Hebrews referring to when he refers to Jesus as the high priest of our covenant? What is Paul talking about when he refers to Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 as the one mediator between God and man? Again, this is priestly language he's using here. What's he talking about? Is Jesus the great new high priest replacing Aaron? Is he the new Israel? Is he the replacement for the tribe of Levi? Is he replacing the Egyptian priests? Is he inherited the throne of Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses? What priesthood are they referring to here? Well, as I hinted already in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, if you read the entire epistle, you see what the author is talking about. You see what the early Christians understood about Jesus' priesthood. 
Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, the author deals with this very question. What kind of priest is Jesus? Chapter 7 of Hebrews, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Shalom, Salem is the name of the city. He is without father or mother, genealogy, and neither beginning of days nor end of, of life. But resuming the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What is the author talking about? It doesn't mean that Melchizedek was a space alien or an amoeba that didn't have a genealogy or something. Or that, he, that Melchizedek was actually God or the fourth person of the Blessed Trinity. What he means is that Melchizedek comes on the scene and you're not told who his father or mother is. Well, the author of the book of uh, the Epistle of Hebrews is telling you that because the, the, the line of Aaron and the priesthood of Aaron is dependent on that genealogical line. No one could offer sacrifice at the altar in the temple unless he was of the line of Aaron. Even of the greater tribe of Levi, they couldn't do it. So, but no one could even get near the temple or near that, that sacrifice unless they're of the tribe of Levi. Again, genealogy. The author here says that Jesus' priesthood is a different kind of priesthood. It's a priesthood not like the line of Aaron. Rather, it's a priesthood like Melchizedek's priesthood. The priesthood where we don't even know who his mom and dad are. Not dependent upon genealogy. And what he's talking about here, he explains in verse 4. He says, see how great he is. Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tithe of the spoils. That is, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. As Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priesthood office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brethren, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who has not their genealogy, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Here tithes are received by mortal men, there by one who testifies that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What's he trying to do here? He's trying to show you that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Aaron and the Levites. Why would he say that? What's the big deal? Well, he explains in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the Torah, the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the Torah, the law as well, new covenant, right? Verse 13, For the one whom these things are spoken of belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. So he goes on to explain and refer to Jesus as the great high priest of a new covenant. Not of the order of Aaron. Not of the order of the, of the Levi. But rather of the order of Melchizedek. The first priest ever mentioned in the Bible who was also king of Salem. What did he offer? Bread and wine. Right? 
We don't have time to look at all these passages, but all you have to do is go back to the Synoptic Gospels and look at Jesus as King of Jerusalem at the Last Supper, offering up bread and wine. Right? Imagery that is obvious to his, uh, to his apostles and to the audience of the first century who heard these Gospels. Jesus is King of Jerusalem. He is the Messiah. And therefore, like Melchizedek, he offers up bread and wine. A sign to his apostles that they were right about his identity. Now, that's fine with Jesus. Right? We can all agree as Christians that Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the high priest. Now, I think I saw there's a priest in the room here. Uh, who's the, Father Hathaway is also here in the parish. I haven't seen that guy in years. Uh, oops, I called him Father. Um, now, Father Hathaway and any of the priests that you are typically familiar with in the Arlington Diocese here or wherever you are watching on the internet participate in the priesthood of the bishop. The bishop is the priest of the diocese. Okay? They are representations, representations uh, for the bishop in the local parish. In the ancient church, every parish had a bishop. The bishop is the successor to the apostles. We know that Jesus is identified in the New Testament as a priest. But where in the New Testament are the apostles referred to as priests or in any way shown to have some sort of a role like this? Well, there are a number of examples. But let me turn you to just one, and we'll conclude with this, and we can deal with any other questions you have in the question-answer period afterwards. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Where are they? It's Pentecost. When was the first Pentecost? After the Passover. Good. When was the first Pentecost, not of the church, but the first Pentecost in the history of mankind? Ooh, someone's been reading the, New, the Old Testament. Very dangerous. Okay, so, the yes, the first Pentecost of Israel is back in Exodus 19 through 24. They're at Mount Sinai. 50 days after Passover. Right, and here we are again. 50 days after Passover. The first Pentecost and Passover of the New Testament. And what Luke shows you here is that many of the things that happened at that mountain, Sinai, and the reception of the law are fulfilled here in this story. You have to know the story of the Pentecost in the Old Testament to understand the first Pentecost in the New Testament. Here, they are in the upper room. Here, there's fire, wind, and smoke. Right? And great noise that is, makes people confused. What's going on? You can think back to the Sinai Theophany. Right? There, they received the law on stone tablets. The word of God. Here they receive the word of God in them. In them. By the Spirit. The power of the Spirit gives the word of God, not on stone tablets, not externally, but like as, as Jeremiah prophesied that the word of God would be written in human flesh. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 and following. Here the word of God comes into humanity, into the people of God, and it comes out of their lips. They don't have to say, look here, that's what the Word of God says. They just preach it. In all languages. Right? A restoration not only in fulfillment of Sinai, but even all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Right? Humanity being reunited 
Now, at this new Sinai, at this new Pentecost, here, the people are called to repentance. There, they fell into idolatry, right? And how many died at the hands of the priests at the first Pentecost? Turn over to chapter 2, verse 37. When they heard the word of God being preached by the apostles, they heard this and they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, and Peter, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children, to all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other words and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day 3,000 souls. There 3,000 died at the ordination of the first priests. Here 3,000 are brought back to life at the hands of the new priesthood. Where does this priesthood come from? Jesus is the high priest. And the apostles and the bishops of the church participate in that priesthood of Christ. A priesthood of life, not of death. And we will conclude there. Thank you very much, Father, for a wonderful presentation. All right, uh, question, answer, the regular rules apply. Make sure your su- question has to do with the subject at hand. Make sure it is one sentence long. Make sure it has a question mark on the end. Answer your questions in a timely manner. And don't take the microphone away from me because uh, we need to get a good recording. For those watching online, make sure you tell us where you're writing in from so that we know uh, who's listening out there. So, Okay, questions. Yes, Bob. Thank you very much for your remarks this evening. Uh, would you ask your brother if I might sponsor your visit here this evening? <laughs> Could I count on you to do that? I'll try. Yeah, Thank I'll you. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> uh, I think there's an Aaronic priesthood and a Levitical priesthood. Is that like the high priest versus Aaronic? You've been talking a- to Mormons, haven't you? No, no. I no? just they there's tend to Aaron, use that language. Aaron, Aaronic I think there's priesthood? a difference yeah. between Aaron and. And yeah, so remember we talked about the different priesthoods uh, in Israel. There is the general priesthood of Israel, right? The nation itself is to be a corporate priest, a mediator between God and the nations. And not to separate, but it, which unfortunately is what they ended up doing, but rather to bring communion, to bring to communion. Abraham was called from the nations for the sake of the nations. Through your seed, all the nations shall be blessed, Right? Israel was called from the nations to be that priestly nation for the sake of the nations. Right? Uh, Adam was called to a special role for the sake of creation. Right? It's never intended to be a, a set apart just for the sake of being set apart and just mean God type thing. It's rather God sets something or someone apart for the sake of those that are not yet set apart, that they might also be set apart, right? They may also be in communion with him. Uh, so the Aaronite priesthood, the priesthood of Israel, and then there was that firstborn priesthood that a lot of people don't, aren't usually aware of. But if you go back and you read some commentaries on that in the Fathers of the Church, you'll see they talk about that other little group that kind of gets forgotten and what they get replaced with, as you saw there in Numbers chapter 3, verse 11, is the tribe of Levi in general. They end up with that kind of priestly role. Okay? 
First of all, let me just say, I am totally with the church on only men being ordained as priests, so please don't take this question as questioning that, all right? Sure. So when you quoted um, Adam's uh, priestly role, and you used that particular quotation, it said, God created man in his image, uh, he blessed them, and, and then he created them man and woman. That's man and woman. Amen, sister. And um, so how is it that Adam has the priestly role and, and Eve doesn't? No, no, Eve, all of humanity does. You could certain sense, you could say that Adam has a special role uh, be, between him and Eve in a certain sense, right? Adam is created, Genesis chapter 2, and then Eve is created from his side, right? And where did Eve learn about God? Where did, she, where did she hear about the commandment of you shall not eat of that tree? From Adam, right? So Adam has that mediatory role, but notice it's not a divisive role, it's to intend to bring communion, right? Adam is there to bring Eve in relationship to God. But in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and following, we hear about man and, in the general creation story there, man and woman are creating the image likeness of God. And there we can see that general priesthood concept. Yes, absolutely. A mother is a, has a priestly role in the family, just like a father has slightly different aspects to it. But the mother is to, to bring the children in communion with God, right? To teach them about, about God and uh, to pray to God for the children. Well, that's a priestly role. It's a mediatorial role, sure. All of Israel had a mediatorial role, a priestly role, right? All of us, every one of us as a Christian, male or female, slave or free, whatever, we have a role as a priesthood between God and all humanity, right? And every individual we meet, we are Christ to the world, right? We have been baptized into Christ. Galatians 3.27, we have put on Christ. We are baptized into His body, right? Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are part of the body of Christ, and therefore we are priests to the world, individually, and as the church, as a corporate, right? As, as Israel as well. You see that? So, absolutely, yeah, there's no... Uh, as Paul says, neither male nor female, nor slave nor free. We all are are part of the body of Christ. Thank you. Yeah. Is that helpful? Okay. Yes. All right. I I was just curious about uh, Exodus nineteen six uh, when you had quoted it. It was basically, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Yeah. Uh, that uh, when you talked about it, you talked about basically, uh, you know, not just. Israel, uh, and I always read that as being just Israel. So the holy nation. I mean, you, you you said that basically that you said that that, that that they were called to to basically bring God's message to the to world. To all nations. Good. All nations. Very very good question. Yeah, and that's why I pointed that out. A lot of times we think of the call of Abraham from the nations as the special thing about just Abraham. Right? Or the call of Israel, this is God's special people just for God and Israel. But rather, as you see over and over again, in the call of Abraham, the climax of it, and through your seed, all the nations shall be blessed. Right? God will bring about communion with all the nations through the nation that's going to descend from Abraham. Israel is called to be a priest, a priestly nation. That is, he says, all the nations are mine, but you shall be my priestly nation. You will be a special people, he says, a holy people. Holy in Hebrew, kadosh, means set apart. But again, set apart for the sake of the rest. Okay, so if you look at the, uh, the call of Abraham, you look at the call of Israel, you look at the Old Testament, you see that God called 
these special individuals, nations, into the, in, in, wherever God calls, he calls them for the sake of the others. Okay, and you see that, of course, in the New Testament as well. So, yeah, that's probably, it's a bit new. Sometimes people don't think about that, that Israel, in fact, uh, Israel doesn't seem to have thought of themselves that way in the Old Testament, unfortunately. Uh, uh, they were supposed to spread the faith to all nations, and they ended up, uh, uh, you've heard it said a number of times, that God called Israel out of Egypt, but it took the rest, you know, in one fell swoop with a strong arm on eagle's wings, but it took the rest of salvation history to get Egypt out of Israel. So Israel had a special role that they never actually lived up to. They received the law and they worshiped the golden calf. They were set apart for the nations to preach the nations and then they, they themselves worshiped the foreign gods that they were supposed to preach against. So, okay? Yeah, you're welcome. I've <clears throat> heard the uh, comment a number of times that, uh, quote, Jesus never ordained anybody, but is there any relationship between the washing of the apostles' feet and the Gospel of John on the occasion of the Last Supper, right prior to the institution of the Eucharist, is there any relationship between that washing and the washing in Exodus of Aaron's sons before the tent of meeting, that which was their ordination? That's a really priesthood. good question. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure that some commentators have made a relationship. No, that's good. Yeah, I never thought about that. Um, but I'm sure somebody else has. I would, uh, I would read some commentaries on the Gospel of John on that passage. And then um, some big thick ones. Don't, not some skinny ones. Look at some big thick ones. And then also read the Fathers of the Church on that passage in John. And there's probably someone has suggested some sort of relationship like that. For sure, uh, some have suggested the foot washing or um, uh, the falling of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles and those in the, in the upper room as some sort of a sacramental image, of course. Uh, but that specific relationship I'm not aware of, but it makes sense. It's an interesting idea. When David was at doing priestly things, did the other people catch the Melchizedek connection or were people offended and think he was sinning? Um... Good question. I don't know. It seems like everybody's, you know, going along with him into Jerusalem, and it seems like no one, there no, doesn't appear to be any offense. The only offense I know of, at least on record, is Michal, the daughter of Saul, who's upset because David's out there dancing, and she perceives it as a fool, right? He's out there making a fool of himself, a king, dancing in front of the people. And besides that, of course, their clothing was a little different than ours today. And so David had a loincloth on, and he would have had a garment like this, okay? So... He's dancing around, you can see his legs, you can see his underwear, and Michal, his wife, is very upset. Uh, uh, so that's the only one I know of that's offended by the, by the scenario there that's described. But uh, the rest of the people seem to be going along. Yeah. But again, I don't know. That's a good question. Excellent question. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.